Good morning, Living Hope. How are you? Good morning, good morning. My name is Matthew Von Stein. Uh, my wife and kids have been worshiping alongside of you for a few years now, and um, it's just an honor to be here with you this morning, and it's a privilege to continue in our series in discipleship through the Gospel of Mark. Um, I am the uh, Metro Director of Young Life here in York and Adams County. It's the title that Young Life gave me, Metro Director. York and Adams County isn't that big. It should probably be like Micro Director, but uh, that, that's, that's, that's the title I have, and uh, it's hard to think about discipleship and not think a little bit about Young Life uh, and what we, what we do in Young Life. Um, we just a few days ago um, came home from camp. Uh, the York area ministry sent almost 100 kids and leaders to camp. We had um, a, a lot of teen moms down in Rockbridge, Virginia, our camp called Rockbridge. And then we had uh, a lot of students up at Lake Champion in New York. And um, it was a, a really full week for leaders. Our, our hearts are full. We're home. We're tired. Our, our bodies are full of like ibuprofen now. Um, and uh, it, you know, it was a really, really, really just beautiful and even at times challenging um, week. And it was really cool just to see how faithful God continues to be uh, to kids and to leaders. We, we often say that camp is an opportunity to remove kids from the distractions of everyday life, right? That makes sense. Um, and I think one of the things that, and that's very true, and I think one of the things that I've noticed, one of the nuances of that is, I think what camp is, Young Life is not a camping ministry, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a mentoring ministry, and camp is one of the tools on our tool belt. And what I've noticed about that is it's not just distractions, is that it actually removes students from sort of easy forms of escapism. You know, the, 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 you know, when we're feeling upset, when we're feeling angry, or we're feeling indifferent, or whatever it is, and so whether it's our phone, or the TV, or drugs, or alcohol, or anything like that, um, you know, camp is this place alongside of a really caring adult where some of that, those things have been removed. Does that make sense? And, and so um, a lot of what students are dealing with, and we, and we find that students are really hurting, and there are a lot of um, anxiety and just depression and hurt and pain and just different trauma in their life. And so when we're at camp, it's, you know, it's incredible adventure. It's incredible beauty. There's incredible humor. And all of it is meant uh, to provide a platform for a leader who they, you know, to walk alongside of a kid who they've known for years and to uh, process uh, the gospel, often articulated to a student either for the first time or maybe in a way that they've just never heard before, in a way that really makes sense to them. And so what happens at camp, at Young Life Camp, is that students are wrestling with who they are and who Christ is. You know, they're, they're asking questions like, you know, who is Jesus? You know, what can he do for me? What does he think of me? What does he want from me? Is any of this real? Can I trust him? Am I included where do I belong? Will my needs be met? What do I get out of this? I wonder if you or I have ever asked any of these questions about the Lord. I know I have. You know, as we dive into Mark chapter 6 this morning, um, you know, one of the themes in the book of Mark, uh, which is so neat, is just this theme of the identity of Jesus Christ and people really being confronted by the identity of Jesus Christ. Right? So you have the crowds and the Pharisees and the religious leaders and the disciples, of course, who, who are, all of these people are very complex, just like these kids at camp, just like me and you. 
all of these people that are, you know, uh, interact with Jesus are incredibly complex, right? Because they have fear and faith and doubts and anger and indifference. They have misguided longings and desires, their own expectations for Jesus, just like me and you. And so this morning, as we dive in, um, we're going to see this wrestling, the converging of who Jesus really is and who we think he is and what we think he says about us. These are, uh, what we're going to read this morning are two really, really familiar stories to you. Like, if you've been in church, you know, at all, right? And if you've been in church since you were a kid, you've heard these stories over and over and over again, right? The feeding of the 5,000, Jesus walking on water, Right? And so I encourage you this morning that as we dive in and we look at this, man, that we would just experience this kind of like wherever we are right now, wherever we are this morning. Two really familiar stories, but man, I think Jesus wants to meet us here in these two passages and for us to wrestle and kind of be confronted with who he says he is, you know, and our own complexity and just to wrestle with with that. And so I'm going to read, uh, we're going to start in uh, chapter 6, verse 30, the feeding of the 5,000. Um, it's a good chunk of scripture, so stick with me, okay? We'll, take, we'll do like an uh, intermission in the middle. So, you know, stand up, get some drinks, sit down, we'll go th- keep going through. Um, but um, so here we are in verse 30, let's go. It says, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going, that they didn't even have a chance to, oh, I lost my place, didn't even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. And so they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them, and they ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day. So his disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place, they said. It's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, You give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take eight months of a man's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and to give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? He asked. Go and see. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. And then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking five loaves and two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls and broken pieces of bread and fish, and the number of men who had eaten was 5,000. All right, deep breath. You ready? All right, let's, let's jump back in. Here we go. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. 
About the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass them by, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought that he was a ghost, and they cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. And then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down, and they were completely amazed. For they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for your word. God, we're so thankful for the gospel of Mark. We're so thankful that these accounts were written, Lord. Not to us, but for us, God, so that we would know you. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work in our hearts this morning, that we would learn more about you, more about your Son, and who we are in you. We love you and we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so we're going to go through this together, and we're going to explore and kind of see this wrestling and and the confrontation of who Jesus is and people's response to that, and again, in a familiar story, and I hope you just kind of go along with me, you know, in in, in your Bibles in front of you and... um, and this is just so great. And so the disciples have just returned to Jesus, right? They have been delegated power by Jesus, right? And so in the Galilean countryside, Jesus has basically multiplied himself and his power. He gave, he delegated power to them and said, hey, go heal in my name. Go raise, you know, go heal disease. Go cast out demons in my name. And so all over the Galilean countryside, that's what they did, right? And, and so this is, this is like a ministry blitz in the area, right? There's just a ton of ministry is being done in Jesus' name. And the disciples come back to Jesus, and they are what? Tired. Oh, man, they're exhausted. And Jesus gets this, right? Because you, you remember a few weeks ago? Jesus was so tired, he fell asleep on a piece of wood in a boat in the middle of a storm. Like, Jesus was tuckered out from ministry, all right? And Jesus gets that. So the disciples show up, they're really tired, they're reporting to him all that has been going on. This is a ton of ministry and miracle happening all around. And Jesus just sees them and he just recognizes their weakness, doesn't he? And he can relate to it, like he understands it. And so Jesus says, hey, let's go rest. Let's get out of here. Let's just go somewhere isolated and come rest with me. You notice he doesn't say, hey, you know, you, you weaklings, like go, go ahead and rest, I'll be here when you're ready, Right? He goes, no, 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 come on, let's, let's, let's go rest together. Let's do this. So they get in the boat, and they're headed to get some of that rest. And man, what does the crowd do, right? So a lot of the disciples were, were from, the, you know, from this area and from these many rural towns and, and places around the Sea of Galilee, right? And so the disciples probably, when they were doing all of this ministry in Jesus' name, they probably went to places that they were from. And so you have all of these disciples all over the place, and this is the height of popularity of Jesus' ministry in the area. And so as the disciples are returning, people aren't just being like, okay, yeah, like we'll see you next year when you come back, right? No, they're they're hungry for more. And so you have all of these people from the countryside following the disciples back. And when they see, right, when they see the disciples get into the boat to go rest, what does the crowd do? And they're just like, man, if we, you know, they're looking at each other right? All of the thousands of people. They're like, if we run fast enough, we actually might be able to beat the boat, right? And you can just like the first 10 people that did that, and then the next couple hundred, and then like a thousand people all being like, all right, we're doing this, right? And the crowd runs 
so that they can get ahead of a boat on water, right? And the, and the crowd does it. You got to give them props. Like the crowd does it. They get there before Jesus and the disciples in the boat. And so then, as the, as the disciples and Jesus were supposed to rest, they arrive on shore to thousands of people. And what was Jesus' response? What does it say? He had what? Compassion on them. You know, and I wonder what the disciples were thinking, like, as they got closer and closer to shore, like, and they're looking at each other. Like, what were the disciples thinking? I mean, they're so tired. You know, have you ever been tired? <laughs> you know, at the end of the day? I mean, I wonder what it would be like if we did this to Pastor Matt or Pastor Tim, right? They pour themselves out on Sunday morning, and we just sprint to our cars and get to their house and just sit in their front lawn, right? And they get out of the car. Karen gets out of the car, you know, and we're all like, more, also, lunch, you know? <laughs> I, I wonder what that would feel like. And so here are the disciples. You know, I, I often think about the disciples as this. Do you ever do this when you read the Bible? I always think of the disciples as this, like, homogenous group that all thinks and feels the same thing at the same time. I, I don't know if you do that, but I do that. But, you know, they're probably feeling all sorts of different things, right? But I bet you some of them are feeling a little irritated, right? Like, oh, like, can't we, can't we get a break right now? And it says that Jesus felt compassion. And here's what I love, is that this is not the first time that Jesus has gotten away or stolen away to pray, to to be with the Father. And hear me out. This was something that just stuck out to me, okay? This is not even my my main point or anything. This is free, okay? But what I love is that Jesus is so serious about his rest and so consistent with being with the Father in alignment with the Father's will that an interruption to rest does not irritate him. Does that make sense? Like he does it consistently enough and he's so serious about being connected to the Father that when he's interrupted, he's not irritable about it. I wonder if that's like a good litmus test for me. You know, that like if, 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 if my result, is, if, if I'm kind of stumbling, right, and stumbling so rarely into rest that when it's interrupted, I just get annoyed and irritated at everybody around me. The truth is, I'm probably not looking for rest. I'm probably looking for escape, right? But Jesus is so faithful to rest. You know, he's so faithful being connected to the Father that when it's interrupted, the only thing that happens, he just pours out his heart. It says he felt compassion on them. And the word that often we see in the New Testament when they're talking about Jesus' compassion for someone, it's this Greek word that I'll never say correctly, but Matt will, all right? Where is Matt? It's, it's splachna. I don't know if I'm saying that right, right? But it's splachna. It's this word that is describing like a sort of compassion that you would feel in your gut. You know, that you, have you ever been hurting or, you know, on either side, right? Really joyful or just in deep pain. Where it's like you literally feel it in your body. And when Jesus' boat is arriving on shore and he looks out at this massive crowd, you know, I talk about the complexity of all those teenagers at camp and what they might think about themselves and what they might think about Jesus. Imagine the complexity, right, of that crowd. Misguided expectations. They wanted to use Jesus. We're going to talk about that. Man, they wanted to use Jesus. They wanted to have their needs met, right? They were there for selfish reasons, for natural reasons, misguided desires. You know, there's, there's faith there. There's doubts and fear and anger, all of these different things, right? And what does Jesus feel for them? He just looks at them and goes, oh, my God, I love them so much. I just, I love that example of God's common grace to everyone. Don't you? 
You know, there's, there was no application, you know, like, hey, Jesus is here, felt this application, and if, you know, you qualify, he's going he's gonna to feel compassion for you. He just loves everybody. No matter, no matter, like, how misguided they were, no matter, like, their mixed motives and mixed emotions, all of that, he just felt compassion on them. I love that. And what does he say? He says he felt compassion for them. Why? Because they were sheep without a shepherd. There's all these different places in the Old Testament that we're not going to read. You'll just have to trust me. Where it talks about sheep without a shepherd. There was one in um, the book of Numbers that says, um, Moses said to the Lord, may the Lord, the God who gives breath to all living things, appoint someone over this community to go out and come in before them, one who will lead them and bring them in. So the Lord's people will not be like what? Sheep without a shepherd. And he said he feels, Jesus felt compassion on this crowd because they were sheep without a shepherd. And often when you're talking about shepherding, uh, and it's correct in the Bible, it's this very intimate sort of pastoral view of sheep and shepherding. And here is this broader sense of this is a people without a leader, right? This is sheep without their over-shepherd to be with them. And guys, this is not... Um, you know, it's so funny, some of the language that Mark used is, hey, they got into hundreds and fifties and they sat in the what? The green grass, right? But no matter, no matter what that might feel like to us, this is not a picnic with Jesus, right? Because what we find here is, and as I read different commentaries about this, man, the, the rural, the countryside of the Galilean, you know, this ministry, or, I mean, I'm sorry, this area, as these, these would have been people uh, sympathetic to those who wanted to rebel against Herod and to rebel against Rome, right? This was sympathetic to revolution. And so you, you have thousands of people here, and it says 5,000 men. And the book of Matthew tells us that, you know, the women and children were, may have been there too. And so we find that this could be upwards of 20,000 people that Jesus is, you, you know, loving on and having compassion for. But, man, they, they have their plans for Jesus, they want a revolutionary leader. They want, they want Jesus to lead them because what's been happening, right? He shows up to their towns, his disciples show up to their towns, and he's, he's, he's feeding people, he's, he's healing people of disease, he's raising their dead. And so the crowd is looking at Jesus going, look at what we can be with him, right? Our stomachs will be full, our families won't be sick, our dead will be raised. Jesus, you are going to lead us. And, and they were probably looking not just into to not just having their physical needs met, but even politically, right? Because they, they hated the rule of Herod and, and beyond that into Rome. And so they're thinking, man, Jesus is going to be our revolutionary leader. And what I love about what happens next is that Jesus, in a sense, is saying, oh, I'll, I'll be your liberator, but I'm, I'm not, I just don't agree with your form of liberation, Right? So if, if you're a revolutionary and you have, you, have all your, uh, you have all your revolutionaries in front of you, you know, what do you do? Well, you arm them. You give them the weapons that they need, right? And so what does Jesus do? What's the next thing he does? He opens God's word to them. Tim Keller, in a sermon, uh, said that as the disciples watched, Jesus was giving them weapons distribution training, you know? This is what this rebellion is going to look like. This is what this liberation of my children is going to look like. This, this is the kind of kingdom that I'm, that I'm bringing. Here, here's how we're going to weaponize these people. And Jesus began to teach about his Father in heaven and about himself and about his purposes and the kingdom. And he taught them. I love that. And so he's been teaching for a while. It says it's the end of the day. The disciples are feeling overwhelmed. And just like the disciples needed to like shake Jesus awake in the middle of the boat and ask the question, don't you care? 
Once again, the disciples feel like they need to inform Jesus about something that they think that he might be overlooking, which is, Jesus, you've been teaching for a while. Uh, It's good, great stuff, really great, took a lot of notes. Hey, everyone's hungry, you know, and there's like 20,000 people here. And so they say, Jesus, please, can we just take a break, send people out to Chick-fil-A? There's different places they can go, and then we'll have the conference kind of, you know, know, when everyone gets back. And, um, but of course, they they say, Jesus, send these people away. They're hungry, you know. And what does Jesus say to them? You feed them. You feed them. I mean, if you asked me right now to feed all of you, I would feel overwhelmed, right? And, and you just imagine the disciples. Just, Jesus goes, you feed them. And in, in the book of Mark here, we have recorded some sarcasm on, on the part of the disciples, right? Did you see what they said? You know, they're like, Jesus, that would be eight months of a man's wage. Can you see the whoever, whichever disciple was saying this, kind of looking around at the other disciples while they say this? Like, with that, like, kind of like... I'm not crazy, am I? Look on his face, right? Hey, Jesus, that would, uh, that would take eight months' wages. What, 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 do you want, what do you want us to do? Go into town and buy everybody bread? Right? And Jesus is patient with them, and he just says, hey, go see what you have. And so over all of these thousands of people, they come back, it says, with five loaves. And this is not loaves like American Walmart loaves. It's not like a three-foot Wonder Bread thing. It was probably more like a biscuit, right? So it's like we have, we have these five loaves and two fish. And from another gospel account, we, we stole it from a little boy. Uh, apparently, apparently his mom was the only mom that thought about, like, hey, you're going to go with, be with Jesus in a desolate place? Take some lunch, Right? And so they, they, they offered to Jesus this boy's lunch, essentially. And I know we probably looked past it before. It's kind of funny that all of a sudden Jesus starts, like there's 20,000 hungry people, and Jesus then holds up somebody else's lunch and goes, oh, thank you, God, for this, right? And I guess the disciples and people are like, well, I guess Jesus is going to eat, right? <laughs> Just stole somebody's lunch, you know? But he, he lifts it up. And I, I love that Jesus asked the disciples to do something impossible, Right? I think he does that intentionally because I think they, not only just for, for, for you know, his glory and our benefit as we see this, but I think the disciples were probably looking back at this, I, one of these moments, because Jesus was going to ask a lot. He's going to ask everything of these disciples who would become the apostles, who would be a part of the first century, first century church, right? You, you know, when Jesus rose from the dead... And he winds back up on shore. Remember the disciples were, were fishing and they see Jesus on shore. What does Peter do? He jumps into the water, right? And he swims over to the shore and Jesus has a little fire with some bread. And he's cooking some fish, right? And you think it was impossible when, Peter, when, when Jesus said to Peter, like, hey, feed these 20,000 people. And yet, what did Jesus say on the shore after Jesus had risen? He said, Peter, you are going to be the rock that I'm going to build my church upon. And what does he tell Peter to do? Feed my sheep, right? Impossible. Impossible. And yet I wonder if Peter would have looked back at that moment, you know, you know maybe having a, a campfire with the disciples at one point and the disciples being like, what did Jesus ask you to do? He told me to feed my sheep. But you know what? It reminds me. Do you remember when we were in Galilee? Oh, yeah. Do you remember when he told us to feed those sheep? Yeah, that seemed impossible. Remember he did it? Yeah. Isn't that cool? I think he intentionally asked them to do the impossible. They gather what they have, and guys, I know we've heard this story a million times, but Jesus demonstrates an unbelievable amount of power, creation power, right? He is God. He creates enough food to feed everybody, and he asks his disciples to be a part of it. Think about it. He makes bread 
that was never its constituent parts. Think about that. He just makes bread. He, he, he creates fish that were never alive. He just makes perfect dead fish, right? It's like the best fish that ever could have been made. You know what I mean? And like every time you go out to eat, there's always somebody who goes, I don't eat seafood, not a seafood person, you know? Whoever you are, if that's me, if that's you, like you would have loved this fish, right? You would have loved this bread. This was the best meal anybody has ever eaten. And what does it say? Man, they were all satisfied. And look, and look at the power, just the command that Jesus has over the crowd. There could be upwards of 20,000 people there, and it says that he had them sit down in the green grass in groups of 50 and 100. Guys, I, can, I think about some of my leaders that are here from Young Life, Courtney, Julie, some of you. Like, I can't get 80 kids just to take a picture. I'm threatening their lives. I'm like, this is for your mom and dad at home. Get in the picture or I'll kill you, okay? And I can barely do it. And yet, you know, and yet Jesus... And yet Jesus, this is one of those things that, you know, it just so easily says, that, and he, he commanded them to sit down in groups of 51 and 100. I know that's so casual to read in a sentence, but there are just moments in Jesus' leadership, or all the moments of Jesus' leadership, where, like, everybody just listens. 20,000 people. It's so, you know, it's so unbelievable, his power, his demonstration of power and authority and love, right? And then how precise he is, how exact he is, right? Because when they're all done, the disciples come back. You know, remember the sarcasm the disciples had about the whole thing? And then they come back with what? 12 full baskets full of food. Can you imagine them just coming back to Jesus being like, hey, Jesus, we have um, tw- 12, 12 extra baskets. And that, just, maybe just one of those moments of just eye contact with the disciples between them and Jesus, right? And the disciples being like, wow, gosh, he's awesome. And so they eat. Everybody has their fill. Um, you know, we don't have a ton of time just to dive into it, but I just say this, and you, many of you guys know that, that for us, bread means, you know, as us, like 2023 Americans, like carbs, you know, but for the Jewish people, like bread is really, really symbolic, right? It's very, very meaningful to them. And so um, they were looking at Jesus doing this. And again, all of those, the, the, the desires that they had for Jesus, um, they're just like, man, he is the next Moses. I mean, Moses fed his people manna from heaven. He led them out of oppression. This is the next Moses. And Jesus was going to continually confront. You see this wrestling that I, I, I opened up this morning with, this wrestling between what the crowd wants and what the disciples want and what they want from him and him having to confront them with, like, Here, with love, by the way. But like, man, this is who I am. You think this is what I'm, you think I'm the next Moses. You don't realize I'm not just a prophet. I'm the ultimate prophet, right? In the, in the book of John, we see that the, the crowd will come back to Jesus later on, basically asking for breakfast, you know, saying, hey, last night, that was awesome. And we're hungry again, you know, and listen to what Jesus says to them. He says, you come to me because you had your fill. And he says this, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. They wanted a bread maker, didn't realize that he was the bread of life. They wanted a revolutionary leader to take Rome by force. And Jesus is saying to them, I am the bread. Jesus is saying to them, anything else and you'll, let, you'll be left hungry again. Your plans your plans for revolution, no matter how worldly your plans are, your objectives, no matter how religious, political, moral, all of it will leave you hungry and unsatisfied. You have a hunger inside of you. 
deeper than, physical, than a physical one, that if it's not met by me, you will starve forever. And you see, you know, this wasn't, you know, Jesus was so passionate and compassionate about people, but he just always drove them deeper. I mean, every story you read, if you know, I just encourage you to dive into the Gospels and watch Jesus as he, as he deals with people and he deals with their pain because when Jesus sees people who are hurting, what happens? Jesus hurts. You, you, you cannot look at Jesus and say that he doesn't care about people's bodies, their minds, their relationships, with all the different things that are going on, but just Jesus just never stops there. You know, he doesn't skirt around people's pain and say, hey, I actually came here just to give you theological teaching. No, he demonstrates his power and his love by bringing people healing. But what does Jesus do over and over and over again? He's saying there's actually something worse than being blind. There's actually something worse than being hungry. There, there's, something, there's something worse than a storm. There's something worse than Rome. There's something worse than Herod. Is that you don't know the God that made you and loves you. And so here he's doing that again, saying, look, I'm not going to keep being a source of food for your stomach, but Jesus, I will be a permanent source of food for your soul, spiritual food forever. They were looking to have their own needs met, and Jesus was constantly looking to the cross. I mean, there it is. It says here in Mark that Jesus, what? He lifted up the food. He said he blessed it, and he broke it. And what would Jesus do on the cross for us but bless and break, right? He's on the cross for us, the bread of life, right? It's either, you know, when you eat the bread, it's either you or the bread, right? In order to be full, the bread has to be destroyed. And there on the cross, Jesus does what? He says, Lord, forgive them. Gosh, they don't know what they're doing. And then he broke. He blessed and broke. And Jesus' eyes were on the cross. He was saying to the man, it's not what I can help you accomplish, it's about me. It's all about me. And so Jesus, listen, at, at this point, uh, you know, try to, try to see if you can get the feeling of what's going on here. The crowd comes to Jesus. They want him to be a revolutionary leader. He demonstrates amazing power, amazing healing, amazing compassion, and yet the crowd still doesn't get it. They still don't get it. And, and other accounts of the same story, right, says that the crowd intended on making Jesus king by force, Right? So the crowd is, wants to misuse him and misappropriate his power and love and compassion and all of these things. And now we see that the disciples are starting to get wrapped up in that fervor and wrapped up in that passion. And so when it says here, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat, I don't think it's like casual, like, hey, guys, um, we're going to go to the next chapter now. And so if you guys can head in the boat. I think Jesus looks at his disciples and sees what's going on. And he goes, guys, get in the boat. I mean, if you're a parent, you actually understand this. When you've been trying to deal with something long enough, you're like, yeah, yeah, put that down real quick. Yeah, hold on one second. I'll talk to you. You put, just go ahead and put that down. Stop. Get down. Stop. <laughs> right? At that point where you, and I think Jesus is beginning to see this culmination of everyone trying to use him. And he looks at his disciples and goes, get in the boat and go. And he sends his disciples out in the boat. Whatever the disciples were thinking. And it says that Jesus, what did he do? Jesus went up on the mountainside to what? To pray to pray. He loves these people, but they don't understand who he is. They had hard hearts. He filled their stomachs, and they just wanted more of that, but they didn't want him. They wanted to use him. And so he sends his disciples out, and he's on the mountainside, and he prays. And I don't know what Jesus was going through. I don't know if he was going through temptation. We know that Jesus was tempted like you and I. Jesus, be our king. Be our leader. Take over, you know, take over Herod. Take over Rome. Take over whatever it is to lay those temptations before the Father. 
and to align himself with his Father's will. But more than anything, I think Jesus was looking out in that boat because the future of his kingdom is now in the middle of the lake, in the middle of the boat. And I bet you Jesus was praying on the mountainside. Lord, the crowd doesn't understand me. They all just want to use me. Lord, would you help these men understand and believe in me and who I am? Do you see it? God, they don't get it, but would they get it? The future of this is in that boat. Lord, by your grace and for your glory, would, they, would, they, would you reveal to their hearts who I am? And so they're miles off course. They're way away from shore. And Jesus, what does he do? Jesus goes to them. It says that they've been rowing for hours and hours and hours and hours against the wind. And uh, all, you know, it, it, it's, it's unbelievable what he does here. Again, I mean, we just, we've seen it so many times. It's so easy to look past it. But, but man, the disciples, they're tired again. They're exhausted. They, they can't get anywhere. They're miles off of course. I'm sure they were thinking that, man, it would be really great to have Jesus with us now. We've been in a boat in a storm with him before. He was sleeping. That was annoying, but he still at least solved the problem. But now, Jesus, we're in this storm again. We can't get to where we're going. And I just, gosh, it would be really great if Jesus could get to us now. And it says that Jesus saw them. He saw them from a long distance, his omniscience. He just, he knew their situation and he goes out on them. He goes out to them on the water. It's unbelievable. I, just, I mean, don't you just sometimes just want to imagine what that must have been like? I mean, was he waving? Like, was he, did the waves kind of move him around? But there's just something that just tells me that Jesus never even got a drop of water on him. You know what I mean? That the wind, the waves, the water, all of it just died at his footstep as he went out to them. The disciples have no answers, no solutions, and it says they were absolutely panicked. I mean, terrified. They thought, it was, they thought that Jesus was an, a ghost, a specter out on the water. They didn't know what it was, and they are losing their minds. And what does Jesus say? He reassures them. He says, hey, it's me. Over the wind, over the waves, Jesus' voice commands to them, it's me, it's I. He says, don't be afraid. Take courage. The language that Jesus uses here is the same thing that we hear out of the burning bush with Moses and when he says, I am the I am. Now, that's what Jesus says to the disciples here out in the middle of the water. He says, I am. I am the I am. Don't be afraid. Take courage. And once again, as I read through this, I could just see the desperation in Jesus' heart for the disciples to see who he is. I don't think he's just out on the water going, oh, guys, hey, 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 sorry, my bad, my bad. I'm sorry, guys, don't be afraid. Don't, Don't you see his heart in revealing who he is to them? There he is out in the middle of the storm. The storm isn't bothering. I mean, Jesus is actually using the storm. He's using their fears to reach them, right? And, just, and he gets to them, right? After everything he's done with the food, everything he's done in the Galilean countryside, he's healed in compassion and in love, and he just saw so little faith, so little revelation to who he was and what he was about and what his kingdom was about. And so he gets to his disciples, and he's desperate for everyone in that boat to know who he is. And he goes, I am the I am. Guys, it's me. I'm God, the Son of Man, the bread. And he doesn't shame them. He doesn't condemn them. He doesn't say, hey, you idiots. He says, don't be afraid. Take courage. And we have this incredible turning point in one of the other Gospels where Peter begins to really pull himself away from really the rest of the disciples or make himself distinct from the rest of the disciples. Because what does Peter do? Right? Peter, in the middle of this, in the rocking boat, sees Jesus out on the water, and he goes, he goes, Jesus, if that's you, call me out in the water. 
And I bet you Jesus, with a big old smile on his face, seeing Peter's faith in the midst of fear, in the midst of doubts, in the midst of questions, right? Peter was just as complex as me and you. But man, I think, I think Jesus and our Lord, man, he looks for a slither, a sliver, not a slither, a sliver of faith in our hearts. And he said, come, Peter. And Peter walks out into the water to Jesus. And it says when Peter called out to him in the book of Mark, uh, it says that, man, he, he, uh, he stepped back into the boat with them. And he said, you have little faith. And Jesus isn't like browbeating them when he says that. He's just saying, man, you tr- you've learned to trust me a little bit. Trust me more. Trust me more. Believe in me more and who I am. It says he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down and they were completely amazed for they did not understand about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. Do you see? Obviously, they didn't understand about the loaves. But what is it in, in the book of um, Matthew, uh, chapter 14, verse 33, this is what says it happened when, when, when Jesus got in the boat. It says, then those who were in the boat, guys, this is my whole heart for this this morning. Then those who were in the boat, what did they do? They worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. And all of this ministry, all of this moment, I mean, Jesus is going to do, had done up to this point so much broad just big ministry to so many people. And what you're going to see in the Gospels is it's going to begin to pivot more and more towards his care of the disciples. And then this, is, this is a turning point for them. Why? Because they, for the first time, what do they do? They confess that he is what? God. This is huge. From confusion to confession, from wrestling and wondering to worship, from fear to faith, And I wonder if the disciples didn't think in their minds some of what they had heard in the temples when they worshiped. From Psalm 77, 19, your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. Job 9, 8, he alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. You know, I'd never ever taught these two messages together, and yet as I read through these, I was so thankful for the challenge to do so because this idea of that wrestling of man, who Jesus is and what people thought he was and what he was about and this incredible moment where God, by his grace, has given faith to these disciples and they lean into it. And what do they do? They finally see him for who he is, a part of them. Do you see that? I mean, God doesn't give us perfect... None of us have perfect faith. But he gives them faith, and it's enough. It's enough. And so they worship him. They worship him. They confess Jesus as the Son of God. They lay down their designs for him, their expectations, their misunderstandings, all of it. The disciples learned that they could trust Jesus in the most dire of situations. When they can't see the end, when they couldn't see escape, when human solutions were gone, they learned that he would sustain them through anything. But more than anything else, more than anything else, they learned that he was God and that he would only ever be God, that he was the son of God, and so they worshiped him. Guys, I can't tell you what an honor it is at the end of Young Life Camp, not because camp is some spiritual flash in the pan, but because God is preparing and has always been preparing kids' hearts, not all of them, some of them, that at camp, because of the pace and because of the place and because of their leaders alongside of them, whatever it is, it's a moment for them to put the stake in the ground. I can't tell you what it means that just, just you know, a few days ago, we got to see some of our high school friends that we've been walking alongside of go from confusion to what? To confession. 
to stand up at a say-so in front of 500 other kids, to walk up in front of a stage and to write onto a piece of paper that Jesus is my king. I want to be in a relationship with him. They don't have perfect faith, but they've got enough. He'll take it. It's unbelievable. And so this morning, I want you to know that the way this, this passage ends in Mark is it says they didn't understand the loaves. Why? Because they had hard hearts. And Jesus was in the business of softening people's hearts, right? Worse than a storm, worse than Rome, worse than hunger is that you don't know me. And what I hope you hear this morning is Jesus saying to you is that he just, he wants you, he wants your heart. I know that I think faith and Christianity and religion can feel broad and it is collective and there is a fellowship to it, of course, but I hope you just hear this morning that, man, Jesus doesn't want just your family's heart. He, he does not just want your spouse's heart. He wants you. He wants yours. And he'll come to you. Like, like this morning, he'll come to you and whatever's going on in your life. And I got to tell you, a storm is anything that keeps you from worshiping him. Anything that keeps you from knowing who he is and falling down at his feet. It can be addiction. It can be financial ruin. It can be relational turmoil or hurting marriage. It can be insecurity, pride, lust. It can be laziness, greed. It can be a misunderstanding of who he is. And hear me out for some of my brothers and sisters in Christ here this morning. One of the storms is just apathy. One of the storms in our life is just feeling, it's just feeling numb and indifferent to him. And yet the Lord will literally walk on top of that indifference, indifference to get to you. Because he loves you and he wants to say to you, I am the I am. I love you. Take courage. And you see, worship, worship is not just, a response to our, not just a response to our faith in him. Worship is also the very means by which God uses to what? To soften hearts. That's what we have. You know, when we come in here on Sunday mornings, I hope you know that this is something that I need to hear and I need to be reminded of all the time. But what we do here on Sunday mornings and certainly at home and throughout the week, but especially I think just our time together, just to know that like, man, we worship. Why? To soften hard hearts. That's what it's all about. You know, when we sing these songs, I mean, they are written intentionally for, to, to impact what your emotions and how you feel and to soften a hard heart. God's given us confession and repentance. Why? For our stubborn wills. To be able to say to God, God, I confess I want to be the ruler of my own life. I confess I seek unsatisfying bread. God, I confess that I, I, I want you to serve me and my kingdom. Lord, forgive me. I'm yours. Aren't you thankful that we come here and are led into confession together? Man, I need that. We listen to a sermon. If, we be, you know, if, if the songs confront our emotions, right, and confession can confront our stubborn will and soften our hearts that way, I'm so thankful for a sermon. Why? For my mind to be confronted with what's true. I mean, all week long, I'm lied to, whether it's my own sin, the sin around me, the sin of the world, the enemy himself. I mean, I'm lied to every single day. I'm so thankful for our elders and for our pastors who confront us with who Jesus really is and who, who we really are in him. That's meant to soften our hearts. You know, we have an offering. And while that's very practically can help pay for, you know, the electric bills and to pay for all the important things, you understand? An offering is just one of the examples of how God wants to soften our hearts and soften our hold on our money, to soften our hold on our time. 
You know, he, he wants us to be a part of it, this new revolutionary force that's completely upside down. That, 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 you know, that Jesus is our example and as we're a part of this new revolu- this rev- revolution that he's a part of. Man, that we, we give up our money. We give up our time. We give away power. And so we have an offering of our time, an offering of our gifts. And often the things that God calls us to feels impossible. I want to encourage you that in ministry, I think that's by design. I think Jesus does that on purpose. Man, we break bread together at the Lord's table to be reminded of God's story and how we're wrapped up in it. And I know that softens my heart. And last but not least, we do it together. We do it here on Sunday mornings. We do it in our homes. But we fellowship together because the truth is, I need you to soften my heart. When I'm going through a storm in my life, if I'm feeling indifferent, if I'm going through uh, whatever storm, whatever thing that is stopping me from seeing who Jesus is or who I am in him, I need you to soften my heart. So I want to encourage you that many times, I know I've said this before, it's like, well, I go to Living Hope for this, or I go to this church for that. Well, I really go to Living Hope for the preaching. And it's kind of like saying, like, I, go to, I go to the gym for my left leg, you know? All of it has been designed what? All of it, the worship, the sermon, our fellowship together, all of it's designed to do what? To be confronted with who Jesus is and who he says we, we are in him and to soften our hearts. So as the worship team comes up this morning, or now, whenever they feel comfortable, <laughs> I just want you to know he wants your heart. And I hope that as we, as we just kind of went through those passages together, I just hope you see just how desperate Jesus was to get to the heart of his disciples and how desperate he is this morning and every day to get to your heart, yours. He wants your heart. Are you wrestling? The crowds did. The disciples did. Let me ask you this. What do you want from Jesus? Healing on demand, wealth? Do you want to chart your own course? Or... Do you simply just want him? Like Peter in the boat. Jesus, I'd rather be out in the middle of the storm with you than in this boat alone. I just want to be where you are. I'm not trying to show off. I'm not trying to prove anything. I'm not trying to test you, Jesus. I just want you. I just want you. Do you see him for who he is? God made flesh, our savior and our friend, the I am the bread of life, the visible image of the invisible God, the answer to every one of our heart's longings, the ever-present strength I need in the midst of storms. It's all about Jesus. And gosh, I just hope all of you here, even if just one of you need to hear this this morning, Jesus loves you so much. He is crazy about you. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your love. God, we thank you for your unbelievable demonstrations of power and love. God, you are, your son is incredible. And we're so thankful for him. But God, we also thank you for how all of this, a massive crowd, 20,000 people, all boiled down to Jesus out in the water in a boat with his disciples. God, thank you for just how personal it got. Lord, that just reminds me of how personal and how personally engaged you are with me. God, I pray this morning as we close out our time in worship, Lord, that we would just know that, man, you want us, you want our hearts. And so whatever we've come with this morning, whatever we have this week, not everything will be solved right now, God, we know. 
Lord, we invite you to soften our hard hearts. We love you, we want you, and we trust you. We thank you that we can now worship you because of who you are in faith. Whatever faith you've given us, God, we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.